There is a change in the uh, topic that the professor is going to speak on. It will be continuation of his um, previous uh, discussions that uh, Peter also addressed um, on the destabilization of the interest rate structure, destroyer of capital, and labor. Thank you very much. Right now, I would like to put a little bit of different spin on things which uh, Peter was talking about the previous hour, and I asked him to bring back that chart here. Uh, during the break, we had a discussion here, and it was pointed out to me that uh, even under the gold standard, there were variations and there were. Uh, <clears throat> uh, long periods of time when interest rates were falling and long periods of time when interest rates were rising. Well, I never said that interest rates were just pinned down and couldn't move a fraction of a millimeter uh, during the gold standard, but there is a world of difference between what you see here and what variation actually took place during the gold standard era. This, this is completely unheard of and unknown if you go back to the 19th century. And this is a devastating verdict on the fiat money system. And this is completely ignored by mainstream economics. They don't, you see, this chart was produced by a US government agency, Freddie Mac. <laughs> and, and they are unashamedly <laughs> just saying that this is the natural thing. The market is doing what it is supposed to be doing going up and down and up and down and be unpredictable. Well, the cheek of them, I mean, this is just so outrageous that I am at a loss to find the words to describe the dishonesty behind. I mean, this has to be explained. Why is it? I mean, under the gold standard, mortgage rates could vary, sure. They could vary between 3 and 4 percent, and even when they are falling, it might take decades, if not centuries. And here, just look at that. This is a gyration which has to be explained. And not only that, but you have to see the consequences. This is devastating to both labor and capital. So I thought I'd like to come back to this topic and we just shift our schedule one slot because I think this is very important. And uh, we want to see the cause of this and we want to see the consequences of this uh, destabilization of interest rate. Now Peter was talking about this, but I would like to stay with this a little longer. 
Oh yeah, yeah, before I remove this, because I put it back with the purpose. Talking about the causes of this gyration and extreme swings from top to bottom, we have to go back to this chapter. You see, there is so much in this that it would take literally hours to just trying to elaborate on this. What I'm suggesting to you is that what, okay, we are talking about the inflationary spiral. And it's quite right, inflation etymologically means the blowing up of money supply. So the responsibility is with the Fed. But please remember that the Fed has finite resources and relatively small resources. But what we see here is like the ebb and tide phenomenon of the high seas. <coughs> this is huge, this movement of money out of the bond market and into the commodity market during an inflationary spiral is huge in comparison with whatever money the Fed can inject into the system. And it's additional, but it's vastly larger. And that's where the damage is coming from. I'm not <laughs> making an apology for the Fed. I'm just pointing it out uh, to you that the Fed is a small potato. Uh, the real culprit is the destabilization of the industry. These huge flows of money, oscillating flows back and forth between the bond market and the commodity market is due to the destabilization of the interest rate, which in plain English means is due to the re forcible removal of the gold standard. Because whatever variations existed in the rate of interest during the gold standard were number one small, and number two rather tame, taking decades. And that's not damaging, not necessarily damaging. What we have here is oscillation which are huge uh, and cause large variation and relatively short-term variations in it. And that is the damage. And I will say a little more about this. But please keep in mind that this is an oversimplification because this huge oscillation So when when this there's tide going here, there's an ebb there, and vice versa. When the tide is going there, there's an ebb there, and uh, this is causing the real trouble. And the Fed is doing its own little damage on the side, 
She said that in, in addition to this, but the main thing is that this is spontaneous people. We talked about this. This is a protest uh, move. People are protesting against low interest rates, so they start hoarding, hoarding gold preferably if they can. If they cannot, they find their own little game uh, how to uh, protect themselves against uh, inflation. And then move in the other direction where the swing or the pendulum reaches this extreme. The panic starts and people try to exit from the commodity market, but the exit is small, only so much uh, trade can be done on any given day. So it may take a long time to uh, deflate the commodity uh, bull and inflate the bond bull. But that's really a bull market. This is important that very few people realize that under an inflationary spiral there can be a bull market. But that's not a commodity bull, that's a bond bull which is very damaging and very destructive. But there is a bull market and this is the trouble because it, it invites speculators know how to take advantage. They know exactly how to take advantage of this situation and they do. Of course they know how to take advantage of this other time as well, but that's not a big deal because a lot of other people also know. This is easy to understand, but this is more or less hidden because if you ask a hundred people what they think, if there's a boom market under deflation, they'll say, of course not. That would be contradiction in terms. But that's not right because there is a bond bull. And those who know how to take advantage of them, they do. So, we have an introduction. I would like to. Alright, I think you can show this. I'd like to. Talk about the damage to capital. Due to no, we turn off itself. I hope so, otherwise I'll be okay. Can we just uh, turn it in another direction? It's still a little bit. Okay. If interest rates are rising, there's damage to capital, capital of industry, productive capital. And if interest rates are falling, there is also damage to capital. So it's damage either way. But you have to look at it in details to understand that one move down is damaging just as well as up. Most people would assume that if a down move is damaging, then an up move would be helpful. 
but this is just not the case, and to understand that, I'm uh, going to go back to one of the things Peter already showed us. But uh, I would like to go a little bit deeper. <coughs> so we are talking about rising interest rates, how they cause damage to capital, and then separately I will discuss how falling rates. I think this is a little bit easier. They are both pretty complicated, sophisticated arguments, but if you want to choose, you will find this is slightly easier to understand. So I start with the easy part. The damage caused by falling rates is going to be a little bit more complicated. So in order to understand why rising rates cause damage to capital, and actually I could combine this with labor. Uh, the other one I couldn't combine with labor, but here you can think of uh, the same argument will kill two birds with the one stone. Uh, damage to both capital and labor, same argument. Okay, rising rates. You have to discuss the concept of marginal productivity of capital. And side by side, the marginal productivity of labor. So I'm going to draw smokestacks here, which are like the the pipes in a pipe organ. Okay. And these are the height of the smokestack suggests. You, you did see that uh, Peter had a, a little more abstract. If you see, I'm trying to make it more concrete. So these are now. When it comes to labor, I'm going to be that people now. I just indicate their head, not the arms and legs. These are people, workers, laborers, but also including very highly skilled workers, including brain surgeons, heart surgeons, and you. And we can talk about the productivity of capital and the productivity of labor by thinking of individual workers who have a certain productivity. That is a concept which can be analyzed. Um, 
going to skip that part, I just say that you, it's always a question of input and output, and uh, you compare the difference, that's the addition of wealth, and of course you have to take time element because it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't make a difference whether you add this value added is happening in one month or in one year. So you uh, put it in a time frame, and that's productivity. It's, it's a fairly uh, simple com uh, concept, and I don't have to write formulas. Uh, one could, but there's no need for that. You all understand that there is, in every productive effort, whether it's capital or labor, there's input and there's output. You take the difference, and then you ask during a unit period of time uh, what's the additional value, value added to this. So each, suppose we are all workers and we are given a number and this number is productivity. And we, have, we are different so our productivities will be different. And then we just line up ourselves according to increasing productivity. Okay, so this, and now you do that for the whole country, or if necessary for the whole world. Every worker is put in its place according to the productivity, not marginal. This is the productivity of that laborer we are talking about, and this will determine his or her place in that uh, scheme. And the same is true for productive capital. That's not just factors and smokestacks, obviously there are equipment, machinery inside, and they each have a contribution to the productive effort. So again, input-output, you standardize in terms of time, unit of time, and then you can rank them according to quality. Still, it's not marginal, it's just productivity. Okay. So, now the question is, Will they get employment? And the answer is, they will if they are high, if their productivity is higher than the marginal. In other words, there's a cutoff somewhere. Cutoff, I think I should draw a vertical line. Cutoff. And the idea is this. This has a number, too. A certain productivity which is the marginal rate of productivity, and a piece of capital will find employment if its productivity is higher, or at least that much. On the other hand, if the productivity is lower, this piece of capital will be idle, because <coughs> I think Excuse me, Peter mentioned that the, uh, the uh, 
values? Yeah, that's right. The, uh, uh, the uh, opportunity loss of employing this would, would make the enterprise loss maker rather than profit maker. So that's why they are idle. Everything is working from here on and everything is idle from here now, I will return to this in a moment to say that this in itself is not rigid. This can change. This red line can move. And I will come back to that. But let me just point out that it's the same thing here. Now, these people are not very productive for various reasons. Could be they are old. I'm not saying old, old. Not very productive, but that's a natural thing that as we grow older, our productivity is declining. So there will be people who are not terribly productive because of age or because of lack of skills, or you can think of any number of reasons. It doesn't matter. The fact is that they are not terribly productive. But then there are higher skilled people, people who who are healthy, who are young, who are full of energy, uh, brilliant ideas, and they will be very productive. And the two are separated by the marginal, I'm not going to write this down here, but if you wish, you could write that marginal productivity of labor, is this uh, red vertical line, and the marginal productivity of capital is this vertical red line on the other. So then the next question is I already suggested to ask is, is this a rigid classification? Those people are forever condemned to idleness and these are going to enjoy these are not people <laughs> capital equipment. And these will be the only ones which can contribute to that creation or talking about people. These people are idle forever. There's nothing you can do about it. And these will be the only ones who help society to create new wealth. Yeah, you always know it's not rigid. This marginal productivity in both cases is going to be flexible. And sometimes it moves up, sometimes it moves down. So we can talk about rising marginal productivity when this moves to the right, and falling marginal productivity. Now here is a little semantic confusion. Because higher marginal productivity is simply assumed by most of us as a good thing. I mean, the more productive a piece of equipment is, the better. However, you have to be careful because there is productivity and there is marginal productivity. Now, higher productivity is necessarily a good thing, but higher marginal productivity is usually a bad thing. 
And this is easy to see from my little chart. Because if the red vertical line moves to the right, it means more peak, more eclipses will be idle. They become submarginal. This is all submarginal here. So if the red vertical line moves to the right, it means idling, laying off, productive up to now. These were productive pieces of equipment, capital equipment, buildings, what have you. And now they are idling. And they won't contribute anymore to the productive effort. And even more devastating it is when it comes to people. Because if the marginal productivity of labor is rising, this is not a good thing. Certainly not for those who get laid off by General Motors or whoever. Because they are losing their jobs. So rising marginal productivity of labor will increase unemployment. And fewer people will have to uh, do the production, the wealth creation to satisfy the needs of society. So I'm calling your attention to this little semantic confusion that people just assume that higher productivity is a good thing and they don't pay attention to the, uh, to the subtle difference between productivity and marginal productivity. marginal productivity. Um, I'm a bit confused what you mean. Um, marginal, I understand, relative to something. The, he's, he's, uh, the, he's asking about the definition of marginal utility. What is it relative to? This is not to? utility. This oh. is productivity. Marginal productivity, excuse me. That's what he wants a clear definition relative to what? Uh, <laughs> Okay, but as I said, I, I can't possibly go into all details here. I gave you a, a working idea of marginal uh, productivity. It's, there is no standard or there's no unit which you arbitrarily choose to compare productivity. This is a distinction between two groups of people on the one hand, two groups of equipment. The, the uh, higher end of the spectrum is going to be employed in production, and the lower end of the spectrum will be, of course, some marginal, will be left unemployed. to be reduced to uh, 
time scale. So if, if, if the question arises in comparison with what, well, I guess this is at the bottom of it. If you start writing formulas, this would come up. But you have to take a unit of time. Now, obviously, it won't be one minute, but it may not be 100 years either. So it could be a month or a year or for various purposes. And then you relate the productivity of each and every worker to that time unit. How much value this individual can produce during unit of time. Okay. Does that answer the question? Is that is that the issue or is Physical productivity, which is different to 
please distinguish between the productivity of the whole project, including labor, and you can move left and right in certain countries you might Put pressure on labor. In other countries, you'll have either asylum or brutal revolution if you dig into the stock market But in the meantime, you can actually you know, improve your project's productivity. But for theoretical purposes and for explaining it, you make a small distinction between productivity of physical, industrial capital, not financial capital, and of labor. And we've separated for a moment. We're not talking about the productivity of a project which would involve all factors like land, labor, capital, uh, you know, that, that's something different. The gist for others has many unimportant because in China you have the marginal productivity of labor, in the States you have it, in Germany you have it. But there is this line where productivity crosses the line from profitable to negative. And that is where people are let off, even in China. Inevitably, yeah, absolutely. Does this mean that if you have high marginal productivity, only the most productive will be employed? Yes, yeah. yes. yes that's his point. Okay, that's what it's not a good thing. Now that's relative, yeah. right. what is most productive. And by definition, uh, most productive are those workers whose productivity exceeds the marginal productivity. And the next question I'm going to address is what determines marginal productivity. But we all understand that I have to ignore certain things. And one thing I ignore that it's possible for an individual to upgrade his or her credentials by taking courses and vice versa. For instance, this little bar here would have a car accident and that would push him back and he becomes. Uh, I mean, there are lots of things, but we just have to simplify it and keep it to the point because otherwise we won't be able to make any progress. So, we all agree that the marginal productivity of either capital or labor can change. So, the obvious question is what makes the marginal productivity of capital or labor change? And uh, the answer is there are several factors which could affect such a change. And this could be all kinds of things, such as the price of energy, or price of food, or, or uh, change in climate. But these are relatively unimportant things. The one factor stands up, head and shoulder above all the others. And this is the rate of interest. So, the it's an oversimplification, but it's one without which we cannot make real progress to say that the marginal productivity is determined by the rate of interest. Now, Let's not start arguing that there are other things. I, do, I know there are other things, and some of them may be very important. But none of them is as important as this one. 
And why is this? Well, very simply, all these things and all these people are in direct competition with the bond market. Because they get employed or they don't get employed according to the profitability of the enterprise. And if the interest rate is higher than the, profit, than the profitability of that particular enterprise where they find employment, then too bad. The factory will close and these will be idle and these guys will be laid up and they'll be unemployed. On the other hand, if the rate of interest falls, then some of these factories or productive enterprise will once more be able to compete with the bond market because their yield, probably gives you a, a yield, will be higher. So uh, the entrepreneurs will sell their bonds and reopen their factories and start go back into production. So there is this competition. Like it or not, nobody asks us whether we approve of it, but that's the way the world is constructed. Each individual worker, as well as each individual piece of equipment, or building, factory building, or what have you, has to compete with the bond market. In other words, they have to produce, they have to be productive enough to beat the rate of interest. This is just another word of saying the same thing. And therefore, if there is a tendency for the rate of interest to go up, to rise, then this is a direct threat to employment of people and employment of capital. And please think of this. This could be very, very wasteful because a factory could be built today and ready to open tomorrow, but it won't open tomorrow because the rate of interest went up enough to render this brand new factory unproductive. Or somebody just took a degree in some university, ready to find a good job because he has the skills, and then too bad, interest rates went up and the employment opportunities disappeared, evaporated. They're gone. Why? Because the interest rate in the meantime went higher. This could happen, and it's very tragic. And that's why the, any violent change upwards in the rate of interest could be very, very damaging to capital as well as labor. And, and this is socially wasteful. And the, 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 this is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the merit of the gold standard. The answer is you have to stabilize the rate of interest. This doesn't happen. 
All this waste is eliminated, all these personal tragedies that a young person would like to find a job with a fresh degree, a good degree, and bingo, interest rate goes up, employment opportunity disappears. What's the answer? Gold standard. So this is, this is why rising rates are damaging to both capital and labor. And here we were fortunate that with one stone we could kill two birds because the same argument takes care of both uh, problems. Now, this is so much for rising rates, but then we want to consider falling rates. Well, I admit that this is a reasonably sophisticated argument, but I don't think you could make it very much simpler. And uh, now we're going to look at an even more complicated argument here. And I have spent endless hours of discussion with people who disagree with me, so please don't feel bad if you don't immediately agree with what I'm going to say. But, in order to explain why falling rates are also damaging, I first have to uh, answer the objection that if rising rates are bad, then naturally falling rates must be good, because falling rates mean that this red line moves to the left, which makes sub-marginal pieces of capital productive again, and by definition that's good. And the same here, when this red line moves to the left, it means that up to now sub-marginal workers become uh, productive again and they can find unemployment. Not so. Why not? Well, because capital, on the one hand, is a wasting asset. You buy a brand new car, put it in your garage, shelter it against weather and other things, and take it out in a couple of years' time, it won't have the same value. But the same is true for all pieces of capital equipment. They have to be maintained. And that costs money, and if this money is not spent on them, then they are going to lose value. So, in other words, there is a built-in waste due to the passage of time. So, if interest rates went up, then fixed marginal capital at this level, and half a year later we go back, it doesn't mean that everything is happy again. Because in the meantime, there was capital erosion. And these, these pieces of equipment 
will not find the same employment again. And even if interest rates go back a week later, there is an effect. And you know, and, and of course you have to realize that shut, shutting off a factory costs money, and it costs even more money to reopen the factory. So all these add up and give you the answer that falling rates are not good, and that's not necessarily good according to this argument. My argument applies here to rising rates, doesn't apply to falling rates. And, and you could repeat it when it comes to people. So I, I, I just leave it at that and, and carry on. Falling rates are actually extremely damaging to both capital and labor. And unfortunately here we have to split the argument because it's a different argument for people, a different argument for capital. So probably I will have just enough time to say something about capital. Okay? Well, this is where my difficulty starts with a lot of people who have fallen victim to the fallacious argument of mainstream economics, who says falling interest rates are good for you, by definition, because it means that uh, you can uh, deploy your capital and so on. Now, the difficulty with this argument is the confusion between I think Peter talked about that, and I want to repeat this. There, you must distinguish between low rates of interest on the one hand and falling rates of interest on the other. Granted, low rates of interest are good for you, good for production, good for people, and so on. That's good. And uh, under the gold standard, that's what you got. Or even you have a uh, gently falling rate because as people save more, that has the effect of pushing them, but never so violently that it would that be damaging. Okay. So that is a, the source of confusion. Confusing low rates and the most important. Now, why is it that falling rates are extremely damaging? Uncertainty. It increases uncertainty. Uh, yes. Maybe, maybe you could uh, make an argument like that. My argument, which I uh, want to present here, is that that in order to have a factory or any capital equipment, you have to finance this capital. It costs money, you have to finance it. Now, it doesn't make a difference whether you go out and borrow money, which means sell bonds, and use the proceeds to buy productive equipment, or you have a savings and you reach into your pocket and pay cash. Because when it comes to accounting, it will be an expense, and it has to be uh, entered as an expense. So in other words, every piece of equipment, 
building or machinery, what have you, has a historic cost, cost of capital, which is financed, which was financed at a certain rate. It may have been a good rate on that day, but if interest rates are falling, then surely that good rate is no longer good, because now you could go out and borrow at a lower rate and finance your capital a more advantageous so, you see, there is a loss in wall, which is just as bad as if half of your factory burned down and you couldn't collect insurance money for whatever reason. And this should be shown in the balance sheet as a loss, a capital loss due to falling interest rates. Put it exactly the same argument, put uh, differently is that you have to carry capital equipment as a liability because you have to think of the liquidation value of debt and capital items in the balance sheet have, all have a liquidation value because that's what the balance sheet is for it has to show the liability at every moment. From moment to moment, uh, it could change. A fire would destroy so much capital, next day, balance sheet has to show it. But if the rate of interest falls, that's also capital destruction, and that has to be shown in the balance sheet. Now, I agree that our accounting profession is not doing this. Well, we ask him to do it. He, he can start. <laughs> there's, there's, there's two points I'd like to make. One, one is that, that most corporates are like across their variable interest rates anyway to start off with. So they don't use fixed rates. The second point is those that do use fixed rates or that use interest rate swaps to fix their rate because usually a portion of their loan before or for a certain period of time. Under the new IFRS accounting standards, which was applied about a few years back in the policy across the EC, all loans have to be marked value at fair value in the balance sheet, whether up or down. And that is done across all public companies now. So are you challenging my statement that as the rate of interest falls, the liquidation value of that rises? Do you challenge well, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that maybe you could modify your argument if companies use variable rates as opposed to fixed rates. No, no, it's not. no look, that's, that's a fairy tale. There is no such thing as variable. No banker will give you a loan on a variable rate because you have to read the small print. And the small print will make this. Look, I, I'm not prepared to go. And, Consider all possibilities, but I think it's a reasonable argument that the banker will not give you his bread and butter because you are a nice guy. He will pretend that he gives you a variable rate, but it's not a variable rate. And I, I won't carry it any further. I mean, <laughs> 
the banking system would be not what we have today if it was just a charity and giving variable rates. They have risks and they want to cover their risks. How do they cover their risks? That they give you a fixed rate and pretend that it's not a fixed rate, it's a variable. I'm not prepared to take this argument any further. If you don't believe me, I'm sorry, but I can't help that. I know how the banking industry works. They have to cover their risks. Now, sometimes they cover it honestly, and sometimes they cover it dishonestly. To, I simply refuse to believe that there is such a thing as an honest variable rate. There isn't, because that would mean the banking system gives up its uh, main source of profits. But, but the spread takes care of the risk. Hmm? Doesn't the bank take care of, of the risk is the spread for that? The spread. He said he's talking about the bank when they when they loan the money, they have a risk on their capital that they've given out, and they offset that risk with a spread. That's what they do. Well, they, the rates are variable plus a spread for the risk of the firm, which is different for the firm. That's where the banks make the money. But I'm sorry, I have an argument to present. I, I know. Look, this this is not the first time I've been involved in this. I'm but if we want to make the progress here with the topic, I cannot branch out in this direction. I simply cannot, because then I, you know, it's just a, an open end discussion, and new everybody can bring in new problems and new complications and so on. If you don't believe it, I can live with that. I can live with that. There is no variable rate. And this is an important point because it's clear, it's understood, and also accepted what we are bringing. But you have to clear and clarify that stand up that in your model there's simply only a fixed rate. So, so let me let me go on because this sure. this is not a productive sure. discussion. You know, I mean, sure, some people believe in fairy tales. Some people believe in Santa Claus, some people, a lot of people, <laughs> tooth fairies and what have you. But we have to be realistic. The risks are there. These risks are artificially introduced in the first place by the government because when they remove the gold standard, they open the whole can of worms and the banks would be very badly exposed if it was not possible for them to use tricks, dishonest tricks, to make you believe that your loan is a variable rate loan. This is a dishonest trick and the government not only allows them to use it, but encourages, because the government has its own skeletons in the cupboard. Why did they destabilize interest rates in the first place? Which, in, which put the banks to risk. Now the banks react naturally. They want to cover their risks. Sometimes they cover it honestly, but that's not possible because the risks are too big. I told, I don't want to put this back, but these are huge.
huge flaws, okay? And this, there are risks involved. The banks are most exposed to these risks, okay? And there is no way to talk, to talk yourself out of uh, these risks. So, okay, I <laughs> overstepped my time, but I just want to finish my argument. So, falling interest rates destroy capital. Why? Because the investment, the capital investment, had been financed at a higher rate. And as the rate of interest falls, the possibility of refinancing. Now that's another thing you could bring up and I would agree that it's possible to refinance. But it's enormously expensive. You could ask our bankers here or anybody who is knowledgeable about refinancing capital is an extremely expensive proposition. So even if the rate of interest dropped 2% and you want to refinance, you can. But again, there is no rate because you pay the loan, which was taken out at a higher rate, there is a penalty, and then uh, you just have to shop around, time passes, and so that's not going to be any In my experience, the company refinances not necessarily for the lower rate, but to reduce the spread because of the blue fundamentals. That is, that is the main reason why companies refinance. But I want to finish, okay? It's we are already over time. So, the falling rates do destroy capital. The greater the fall, the greater the capital destruction. And to tell the truth, there's more than that to it. Because destruction is not the word. Destruction is just to dramatize what's going on. But it's pilfering and plundering. What is happening is that the, you know computer hackers who can enter balance sheets and shift money from one account to another illegally, and of course we have legislation to cover that, but we don't have legislation which would allow uh, or justify uh, bond speculators to siphon off uh, funds from the, product, from, from the capital account of productive entrepreneurs. This is not covered. You can check your uh, various uh, anti-hacking laws, and there are lots of them, but this is not recognized. It's not a crime, as it stands presently, to use uh, bond speculation to get illegal gains. Now, those gains did not come out of nowhere the gains which bond speculators make. 
the profits which bonds speculators pocket. They come right out of the capital accounts of productive enterprise. And uh, that's another question to say, all productive enterprise suffers just some of them, and again you could set up a uh, kind of uh, uh, scheme that is marginal and so so one end of the spectrum suffers more, the other suffers less, or doesn't suffer at all. But the fact is that productive enterprise is being pilfered and plundered. And plundered, uh, plundering was made possible by the government in removing the gold standard, but there is no protection for this kind of plundering. You cannot go to a court and say that I am a victim because blah blah blah. You can't do that. There is no legislation, there is no act which should protect, would protect you. And all producers should be aware of that. And they are not. Probably less than 1% of them are aware that they are being victimized and victimized by uh, bond speculators, most of whom are banks. You see, it's not necessarily exactly the same, but most bank, banks uh, are involved in bond speculation. And uh, I will have another opportunity to talk about this in greater detail. For the time being, I just want to say where we are. We have explained why rising interest rates expose uh, capital and labor to great risks and actual damages. And only when it comes to falling rates, I have explained why it's damaging to capital. But it's also damaging to labor, however, this is a different argument and I ran out of time. So thank you, <laughs> thank you very much. Nathan. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say I am, um, I won't take any time with this in my question, but I am curious, since I'm not, obviously, is you know, my depth of understanding of this great discussions, but I would be very interested in hearing your entire argument. I think I can refute it, and if I can, then I can do it, I guess. Uh, but um, my question, uh, uh, my own uncertainty about one of the things you mentioned was if a factory, uh, if, as you said, the, the marginal productivity rises, and even a brand new factory with just both going production has now become sub-marginal, uh, isn't it, how does the, um, uh, the market activity fit in, uh, like for example, if a corporation only owned that factory, that one factory, now the corporation realized that it was about to go bankrupt because it couldn't start operating it, wouldn't the, when the creditors seize the factory, wouldn't they simply turn around and sell it to a new entrepreneur at a lower price, uh, and then the factory would go back into production because now, uh, if, if that new purchaser paid a small enough amount, he would be able to make a go of it with that factory. Uh, the, old, that, the old factory, the somebody old, buys the old factory. If they had a much lower price, doesn't that, just no, the, no. the same way that bond, sure. a bond, an old bond has a low coupon rate and interest rates have risen, it sells at a discount, but now the new investor is happy with it. Yeah. So the so yeah, factory, but but so somebody had to take a loss. Oh yeah. So projecting to the whole society, it's not without a loss, because whoever took the loss is also a member of the society and he suffers. So you know, I mean, you are perfectly right. Sure, 
uh, fire sale price, you buy uh, bank of uh, capital equipment, uh, scrap value and put it back into production. Sure, sure, absolutely. But don't forget that there was a loss. The society uh, had to suffer. And this is a waste. And it's a wasteful system. And why is it wasteful? Because the marginal productivity is changing violently in one direction. So we are looking for a system which eliminates that danger, which hurts everybody. Some directly, some indirectly. Actually, yeah, that's right. That now, now I see the answer to it because you're saying why would, why would capitalists keep playing that game if each new capitalist solves its capital like that every time you try to step in and buy it back? But otherwise, yeah. yeah. And I think, okay. Professor, the same argument that was used here goes for variable financing with, with a scheme like, for instance, a, a interest rate swap. First of all, that interest rate swap doesn't come cheap. But in the interest rate swap, somebody takes a hit. That's right. Somebody takes a hit. You are kicking the garbage upstairs. You were able to deflect, for the time being, your loss onto someone else. But nevertheless, loss. That argument would go for, I think, also the, the, no. the financing scheme whereby you protect yourself with a, an interest rate swap. Nathan, uh, you have a very good point. But also, you have to take into account that when this happens, the red line moves to the right. And this, oh, here, and this becomes submarginal, and that is sold for scrap value. That will immediately move that piece of equipment to the right of the red line. You see? So, yeah, I guess so you cannot say that you have the answer to the problem with the savage capital which was damaged by the rise of marginal productivity. That's not the case. The fact is that it was refinanced. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, just like a worker taking a wage cut. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't quite make that full connection. It's just like a worker taking a wage cut and now he's marginally productive. But he's hurt. Yeah. Yeah. Nathan, uh, think of the original investment as a non-investment. All that money went to the brand new factory wrongly because it didn't anticipate the shift. And if you were now doing it at a much lower price, maybe it's another round of investment if this line was even further. Yes, and, that, and, that's, and that's why I see now, that's why the ultimate of the factor is being idle for good in North America. Not, not only that, but if you take, a, take an interest rate, let's say 5%, and the base rate goes down to 3%, like the professor describes as your flow issue. You take, a, you, take, you take a loan, your, your monthly fee is being calculated once you take it, and it's there. They're not going to change it for you just because there's a low interest rate. You have to pay it. Okay, and then next company comes in in a lower interest rate, then you suffer basically because you have to work out more capital or more more interest, more interest with your with your capital than, than the other one. That's also that's also based in the in the game. Yes. I think one one of the things that must might be very important is that the adjustment of rates is having a very uh, is having an effect on the market productivity of capital and labour in the short term. And so it's a very short term uh, effect. So if you drop rates 
that's, you might be able to reduce the marginal productivity of, of capital labour, which provides some short-term benefits, but then there, there are long-term um, uh, disadvantages because you have commodity inflation, and then vice versa. You, you, if you rise in interest rates, you have a short-term effect on the marginal productivity of labour, and so um, there, there is a, some damage done to um, uh, productivity of capital and, and labour in the short term, but in the long term there is a, an advantage because the commodities prices will come down because of interest rates rising. So there is a short term effect and a long term effect. And so those things, when they're happening, when they're happening in a natural way, are healthy. I think here, and, and this is why this conversation, the dialogue is so interesting, um, and it is interesting, it's brought up a lot of stuff, because I think we're getting close to the heart of the professor's thesis here, and it's, it, it's, it's a very basic thing that he's talking about. <clears throat> I mean, we've all learned to dance on the fire. We've all learned to adjust, because we've never lived in a system where the fire has not been burning, either out of control or a controlled burn. And we've all learned to dance in it. And what the professors put out here is a very basic, basic tenet that when they pulled the gold out of the economic system, they did so at a cost. And the cost is borne not by the quick and the nimble. The cost is borne by the producers and savers. And we are in a system that over time, because Keynes, I, I looked at some of Keynes' writings and he's very interesting. He talks about money over time. Over time. And the truth is the gold system persists over time, but it persists in the moment. And what the professor has, has put out here is, is that 
the cost is borne by the producers and the savers ultimately. Whole society. Whole society. It's a societal cost. Because consumers are not spared either. No. Everyone pays here. But the, the quick and the nimble are able to dance on the fire at least until the whole thing goes up in flames. And what we are looking at here is the context of it. And I think that the value of Gold Standard University is that these are brought to the front rather than basically ignored, basically factored out of the system while the system is operating. And what we're, what we're doing here, and this is a very important dialogue, these questions are very important questions, is really the systemic costs, systemic perceptions. And that's the value of what this whole forum is all about. Thank you, Daryl. I couldn't have put it better than <laughs> Well, I couldn't have put it unless I was sitting next to you. <laughs> I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> yes, John. Okay. Am I correct in thinking that if we had a gold standard, it would force the banks to invest in productive industry instead of paper speculation in the bond market? It's, it's true. Is that the, 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 yeah, you got it. The, yeah. The, what happened is, is that, and I think the professor has pointed out here, says there's a place for capital. There's always a place for capital. We've, we've, been, we've, we've been distorted into a system where it looks like capital versus labor, and you know, where they're fighting against each other. There's a place for capital, there's a place for labor, there's a place for savings. But once that cotter pin got pulled out, it came at a cost, and in the front end, you don't see it. In the back end, it's always going to be paid. Well, we have um, 10 minutes for lunch. We will we get, ten, no, to go to lunch. <laughs> I like that. 10 minutes for lunch? Now we have a direct capital cost. What does that mean? All right. And some responded. We'll be back here at uh, 2.30 for the next session and uh, we will recapitalize. <laughs>